0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. Hope everything's going okay, wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Thurston Moore, founding member of the band Sonic Youth and author of a new memoir entitled Sonic Life.
1: I was hyper aware of something going on in downtown New York that I was very interested in. I had already sort of been interested in music coming out of New York City, whether it was the New York Dolls or there was a band called The Dictators that were early on, you know. and To me, you know, if it had anything to do with, with urban music and the kind of chaos that it kind of implied, I was just like really... I just was interested in what was going on in the wild side of rock, you know?
0: Okay, that was Thurston Moore. His new memoir is called Sonic Life, available now from Doubleday. Sonic Life traces the creative history of Thurston Moore's existence from his teenage years as a music obsessive in small-town Connecticut to the formation of Sonic Youth, his legendary and very influential rock group which played together for 30 years. My conversation with Thurston Moore is coming up in just a couple of minutes. A quick reminder before we get going that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at Substack. It is simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, Head on over to Substack and subscribe. Likewise, if you love this program, if you listen regularly and you want to help support the cause, help see this show continue into the future, you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash pod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of The Night Parade, a new memoir by Jamie Nakamura Lynn. It is the official November pick of the Other People Book Club. The Night Parade is a harrowing account of mental illness, loss, grief, and other difficult topics, all driven by the question, how do we learn to live with the things that haunt us? That's The Night Parade. The New Memoir by Jamie Nakamura-Lynn, available now from Mariner Books. Alright, so my guest once again is Thurston Moore. His new memoir is called Sonic Life, available now from Doubleday. Thurston Moore is a founding member of the band Sonic Youth, which was formed in 1980 and over the years thurston has been at the forefront of what is commonly referred to as alternative rock which is to say like rock and roll music or really any music that challenges and defies the mainstream standard sonic youth is one of the most influential rock bands in modern history you can hear its influence all over the place including in the music of notable bands like Nirvana and Pavement. These days Thurston Moore performs solo with various ensembles and with his own band called the Thurston Moore Group. His most recent musical release is a full-length album called By the Fire. I believe that came out in 2020. I am very excited to have had the chance to meet Thurston Moore and to speak with him about his life, his music, and his new memoir. Again, it is called Sonic Life. So let's get to the conversation. Here he is, folks. This is Thurston Moore.
1: You know, a few people told me it's like, you know, you're going to have to get the scissors out at some point. So poor you. And I was like, no, I, I understand. In fact, the process of editing was something I was li- really looking forward to. And one of the reasons I really wanted to r- write a book long form book was just, I just really wanted to write. I mean, I take I, I find writing to be a really joyful creative impulse and I've always published and edited to some degree, um, poetry journals and music essaying and a, you know, a bit of a frustrated music journalist uh, since day one. So um, I've always been writing, but to, to write something an extended uh, book length uh, piece something I had never done for whatever reasons. Uh, a lot of preoccupation with being a musician, being in a band, being on tour, and you know, and just sort of writing songs, et cetera, et cetera and just life itself. I, I would always sort of put it on the back burner. But I knew one day I sort of wanted to write a book. I wanted to have a book in a bookstore. I wanted to see the book in the bookstore window and all this kind of stuff, all that kind of glory. And the device of writing a memoir was 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 fairly pretty much the easiest thing I could think of. A lot of people would ask me, like, are you ever going to write a a music memoir about whatever yourself in in, in the context of Sonic Youth? I said, yeah, possibly. But I just wasn't really that keen on writing a a memoir per se or even using that word memoir. I I kind of wanted to write about music. I wanted an essay about music. And so my initial intention was to use my my life experience as a cipher of of discovery in just talking about the documents, discovering at an early age, these subversive texts like Patty Smith's seventh heaven book, you know, from 74, 75 uh, when it was published. And like, why did that appeal to me? Why did that resonate with me? Everything about it, you know, the the writer itself or the writing. And I knew of her writing from rock magazines, but now, why was I attracted to that more marginalized take on music, you know, as a, as well as the music itself? So, somebody like her, or somebody like Lester Bangs, writing about people like Iggy Pop, or or something, it's like, I, you know, I was, I felt, I was a bit alone in in a sense because living in rural Connecticut in the in my early teens. Most people I associated with it in that youthful days, in those youthful days, were people into Bachman Turner Overdrive and yes, and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Led Zeppelin, of all of which I was okay with. But I was at the same time I was very attracted to these, as I said earlier, subversive voices, and I kind of wondered why. And I, I think I kind of get into this analysis of that without ever answering it i don't you know and so i just sort of decided like why don't i just write about these documents and let that stand alone as if it could sort of just tell the story without me having to go deep into my own sort of psyche and try to understand like why do i like punk rock you know (laughs) you know when nobody else does in my neighborhood you know So, But I try to sort of come to terms with the fact that from what I can gather from my own sort of musical knowledge is that there is a lot of impeccable creative work going on in that world that exists on the margins of what is considered the mainstream or or the more acceptable sounds and literature and the culture. So subculture to me was far more interesting possibly because it informed culture, you know, I mean, maybe that was it, but I certainly liked the work more. I mean, and nothing against Led Zeppelin, but I preferred Captain Beefheart, you know, but um, I would say that the, the value is equal, but I thought the profile wasn't equal. Led Zeppelin was on the cover of every magazine. Captain Beefheart was not. So that made him more mysterious, more interesting to me. And so maybe it was the mystery of, the subculture that attracted to me attracted me more so than say the subversive qualities of it. I like that too. I like the danger and the recklessness of it. But I I kind of I say if I did have any answer to that analysis, it would be it was I was attracted to just the mysterious otherworldliness of 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 these writers and these people.
0: Well one of the things that I can't help but notice as I uh read your book and reflect on your book is what a fan of music and art and culture you are like to the point where i think it almost gets scholarly like everybody who makes music or art is a fan of music and art to some degree but that's very natural but you distinguish yourself in these pages as somebody who has an almost like encyclopedic awareness of what is happening in music in particular, and especially this music that kind of exists on the margins. And I think it gets to the point, and this is demonstrated, for example, with Nirvana, where you become very astute at seeing talent on the rise and recognizing it early. So can you just talk about being a fan and also being a creator?
1: I think, you know, a lot of the a lot of my interest is so anal retentive that data is really important to me. And I know that it's like, that's kind of a, you know, that's a certain specific uh, thing that I share with other record collectors and book collectors, et cetera, of which I used to have conflict with because there's something you could discount about people who just sort of wanted information as if they're stats, as if you're interested in, Baseball before like stats and and I never really was a sports person but I did sort of like the fact that there was people who dedicated themselves to uh, the statistics of players and their and their histories and team and, and with these teams and I thought that kind of applied certainly to the sentient arts as well you know whether it's sort of visual art or music or literature and I kind of realized that that was okay but i did also realize that for the casual reader it's a little bit it's a little bit too much and i wanted to find a balance between my fascination as a fan with the emotional resonance and that kind of um wanting to know everything about that person or everything about that person's work and you know so to be a completist, like I must have every single variant of that seven inch that you put out around the world. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't really need that to actually just love what you're doing, you know? And so I tried to have, I kind of wanted to write where there was, there was that sort of balance of the emotional and the, and just the statistician of just, of of being, you know, just sort of a, a scholar of the details of somebody's work. And sort of wanted to, kind of come to terms with in the writing how to sort of intellectualize that feeling, especially with a band like Nirvana. Like I knew nothing really about the band except for they had something to do with a record label that I was very keen on, Sub Pop. Sure. You know, the only reason we went was because our friend from Sub Pop had put the seven inch out, and and the the young woman who was. Touring with Sonic Youth at the time and just doing our lights and selling our merch, she was the only person with us in the van other than the, in the band. She did the graphics for Sub for Nirvana's first seven-inch label, and uh, so that's the reason we went. You know, just to appease Bruce Pavitt at Sub Pop and and our and Suzanne did the artwork, and we had no idea that the band would shred our faces off like that. But I kind of want to just write about what that initial emotional moment was of of actually sort of being in the room with something so uh, astounding, you know, and, um, and in some ways I, I think I even sort of strip out the actual date, you know, like what date was it, you know, what, what I, I sort of, I kind of changed the, the writing to like, it was in the fall of a, it was a beautiful fall night, you know, when we were walking from Hoboken train station to Maxwell's to see Tad and this band called Nirvana opening up for them and without without giving out all these details i mean I, like i said before i really love detail oriented uh music literature like there's a sex pistols book that details every single day of every single of every member of the band's life from when they first meet and like which gig steve jones was at the same night, the gig that Sid Vicious was at down the, you know, down the road and all these kind of things. There's a David Bowie book that details every single day of, of his, of his professional life. I love that. But I I realize that's not a book that a mainstream publisher can really sort of put out there and campaign for. They want a book that sort of is more for a re for all all readers. And so to be fair to all readers um, you don't want to sort of, clog up your book with all this, this, this data. And so um, it allowed me to sort of write a little more sort of prosaically, <laughs> mm. you know, which I want to do anyway. So, so it, it was definitely, you know, wanting to sort of keep my Mr. Know-it-all in check. Cause it's like, even, even my editor, Yaniv Sarov from Double Day Penguin in New York when he was editing and we spent all last year editing. Cause it was, the manuscript was about 800 pages he would circle certain things and go like, this is a little too professor more, <laughs> you know, which I, I kind of understood. And, um, but I just sort of, you know, I kind of, I, I like that, but I, I, um, I also knew that I really wanted it to be about writing as opposed to information. Cause I, I, like I said earlier, I, I find such joy in writing as a creative impulse that I, I it was just sort of the, the artfulness of writing is what i really wanted to, to employ myself in to and so that was that was the primary essence of that was to write and you know and to make sure that nobody thought that i was another musician putting out a memoir that was ghost written which most are a lot are sure. most musicians don't really write and you know for better or worse i don't really i'm not being accusatory or judgmental about anybody who is a ghost writer i mean a lot of books are sort of dictated and then sort of put into uh, kind of a readable context. But I am, um, and I don't have an issue with that, but I I knew that it was not what I was going to do at all. Uh, I, I really wanted it to be about writing. And so I wanted to have a book that sort of distinguished itself in the canon of, of music memoirs where you could actually believe that I'm writing and I'm being writerly. And I hope to sort of at 65 years old, have maybe achieved some kind of form of being able to be uh, uh, looked at as a, as a writer. Um, I don't think I could have written this 10, 20 years ago.
0: It's hard to write a book, right? (laughs) It's not easy. it,
1: It certainly takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of being able to sort of block out the, you know any any kind of um, any any kind of disturbance in your day I mean it's impossible for anybody especially in the atmosphere of today's world you know just with with everybody with a laptop in front of them it's almost entirely impossible so you sort of you know I would, I would hear stories about writers like Jonathan Franz and sticking Elmer's glue in the portals of his laptop and putting a blanket over his head for 20 hours a day
0: <laughs> yeah I've heard those stories <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you about the, the story that you're telling in this book as it pertains to place, because your story is such a story of place to me you and Sonic youth are inextricable from lower Manhattan and the post-punk, the punk and the post-punk scene of the 1970s and eighties. And I was thinking about your childhood, you know, early, early part of your childhood in Florida. And then I believe there was a quick spell in Tennessee And then you ended up, as you said earlier, in rural Connecticut, in Western Connecticut. Your father was a professor at Western Connecticut University. And even though you were kind of out in the sticks, you did have proximity to New York within a a relatively short drive. And I just found myself wondering, like, wow, in the absence of that proximity, if, for example, you had stayed your entire childhood in Florida and you had been an adolescent, in Coral Gables, that, that's right, right? It was Coral Gables. Yeah. Uh, yeah, South
1: Miami, Coral Gables. Yeah. I'm
0: like, I'm like, man. I wonder what kind of music Thurston Moore might have made. I feel like he would have still made music, but I wonder if what it would have been like. Have you ever thought of that?
1: Oh, all the time. I have always thought about like what would have happened if my father relocated the family to Tulsa, Oklahoma, or anywhere uh, besides being an hour and a half away from New York City and what that would have meant. And subsequently I've become quite enthused about everything that was happening in, in re, like the secondary tertiary kind of regional scenes across the USA. And which became really important to what underground music was all through the eighties and nineties was, it was this kind of, connective, collective energies from these regional cities, such as Tulsa, such as Minneapolis, such as Lawrence, Kansas, such Seattle, for God's sakes. And just sort of like, all you know, we all kind of, as soon as everybody was able to tour, we would hit every single venue in all these towns and you would discover all these scenes of bands that had come up. I make mention of it in a book when I start talking about a band like The Wipers, who early on put a record out of Portland, Oregon. And just like how these kind of new radical sounds are, are happening in places outside of the high profile London, LA, New York, uh, kind of, you know, axis of, of, of where the media eye is always. And that was, that was really exciting to hear and discover records coming out of like these kind of more podunk places, as they say. And, um, I remember going and visiting South Miami in the late seventies with my family sometimes, and especially around 77, 78, I remember visiting down there and seeing in the local freebie arts paper, um, an ad by somebody saying, looking for people into Blondie and the clash and the talking heads to, to start a band with or something. And I remember being struck by it. Thank you know, and I was all 19, 20 years old thinking like, maybe I should stay down here and answer this ad because then we would like, I mean, we would rule the scene. We were were the only ones who would like like know know about this music Mm -hmm. as opposed to going to New York where like everybody was on board below 14th Street. And uh, I I didn't do that, of course. But I kind of later in the years, uh, later in the years, I would meet people from, Dade County, Florida around that scene who actually also migrated up north and started bands and fanzines and run one of them ran a record store called Rat Cage and some of them said oh I think I know who ran that ad but they all sort of came out of that world and through the years into their early 80s they all found each other and and of course like the whole kind of uh, the whole regional punk and post-punk scene was Happening everywhere, and it started happening in Southern Florida as well. And a lot of it was sort of centered around just like younger people, half generation younger than me, starting hardcore bands, where they were discovering punk rock from each other, as opposed to sort of even any other any history of any other music. So, a lot of hardcore bands were just, you know, their their first. Hearing of rock music was from the first Dead Kennedys album. For God's sake, they were. It wasn't like they came up listening to Beatles and Stones and Kinks and you know, like we did. So it was just kind of like that was really fascinating to me. It's like, wow, that's so primal, and that's like you know, you're you're inspired to start a band because the, f- the first thing you're hearing is Black Flag, you know, <laughs> and, uh, it like, and it was, and and so there was. You know, I thought that was very special, and so, but yeah, I did. I did wonder what it would be like if I didn't have proximity to New York. And, yeah, do you, um, think
0: you, these, like, you think you would have found these? You think you would have found these post punk guys who were putting ads in papers? So. You would hope so. Maybe you would have. But I would it's hope like so. It's 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 hard to imagine you and the work your body of work, like outside of the context of New York. It's so integrated, and that place and time that you describe in your book. I, like I missed all of that and only kind of ever knew New York as a place that was like prohibitively expensive for creative people to live in. So it's, <laughs> well, hard, not yeah. to, it's hard not to read it with like a sense of like, uh, yeah. you know, uh, sadness. There's something elegiac about your book when it comes to what has happened to New York as it pertains to like real estate and how creative communities have sort of been priced out. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Well, it's, it's somewhat conflicted. I mean, it was certainly a place where you could go and connect with other people who are interested in this same idea of of. of creating radical music or art or literature and knowing that you knew there was a lineage there. And so you kind of went there because of that, whether it was, you know, the New York dolls or velvet underground before that, it was just like, you knew there was this lineage there of writers like Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs. They all, it was all this New York thing that said, you know, when I was in New York and the living there from 78 onwards, I would see fanzines like Flipside or slash from Los Angeles. and, Be really very curious about what was going on in Los Angeles because that's that's it sounded so completely uh, at odds and different than what was happening in New York. It was like it seemed younger and it seemed like everybody was meeting each other and sort of connecting with each other, like on a high school level, and then graduating but still kind of uh, meeting each other at the same venues and record stores or whatever. It was a different world, it was like kind of more. People were indigenous to LA uh, early on, whereas in New York, it, a lot of the community came from outside. And in some ways, you know, the only really indigenous communities were like the hip hop communities or the or, or, or salsa communities around the Latino communities. As far as new music, um, <clears throat> as far as rock and roll music, there was some uh, there were some people who were brought up in Manhattan and Brooklyn or whatever, but most people came from outside. Coming out of universities and such, specifically Cleveland and you know for some reason Northern Florida and Boston and just coming into New York and for me it was like you could live there. On, I paid one hundred and twelve dollars a month to live on Thirteenth Street between A and B, but it came with a price. I mean, you were it was there were rough and tough streets and you know there was. Uh, there was crime and there was dirt and garbage and there was, you know, um, it, was, it was financially destitute and the U.S. government sort of let just basically under Gerald Ford said, let it burn, you know, um, drop dead. Uh, it was and so that was sort of the the atmosphere as lydia lunch so famously put it is it's like the apocalypse had already happened and it was in some ways it was like a, it was a it was this playground for as such and you felt invincible as you are want to be in 1920 21 years old anyway you know it's just sort of you can you can sort of you can sort of block certain things that would be a little harder to process maybe at a later age you know uh, such as some of the uh, a lot of the Kind of societal human degradation that you would see, but you know, as as a as a young white male, I was fairly cushioned and comfortable in the in the construct of all this.
0: And you were uh, six foot six, so I mean, and I feel was like, six foot six. Yes. I feel like that helps.
1: <laughs> it, I, I think it it possibly did. Yeah, you know So uh, New York was what it was, but you, we you did not know that it was this sort of penultimate or ultimate time before the city would be. Uh, renovated through real estate, you know, become moneyed. And I think all the cities sort of went through this, even certainly London did to some degree Paris and certainly Berlin did for whatever, with different factors. Um, But it was almost as if there was a consensus that the cities needed to be saved by the end of the eighties in order for, um, in order for industry to continue and in any kind of, um, In in any kind of real way of monetization, so that was that became obvious with the advent of young professionals coming into the cities and being catered to, and um, it did, but it did price everybody out. But now we have, you know, we have laptops in suburbia. So
0: right, right. (laughs) Well, another thing that I was thinking about when it comes to your creative trajectory and. Your life story has to do with the loss of your father which you write about and this happened this was like a signature event in your young life this was late adolescence when this happened so a very tough loss your father was uh, as we mentioned earlier a teacher an academic uh, music teacher and your house was filled with books and records and art and you had a kind of groovy childhood in that sense but your your father's death happened at a point in your life where you were about to go off to college and sort of at a pivot and trying to decide unless i'm misplacing it please forgive me if i am but i believe that happened right around the time you were deciding to go off to college to pursue journalism at western connecticut but then you pretty quickly left yeah. and you took off for new york you could sense that that was where your destiny lay yeah. and so a question i have and sort of similar to the one earlier about having moved around and having proximity to New York, is that in the absence of your father's death, do you think you would have gone off to New York? Were the two things related? Would he would he have pressured you or would you have felt more of an obligation to sort of stay the course academically?
1: I I have thought about that for sure. My father passes away in 76. It's, it's, I, you know, to write about anything that was sort of heartbreaking in my book, I kind of wanted to stay away from, I wanted to sort of mute, um, you know, the kind of darker moments in, uh, in, in my history. And I kind of wanted the book to be more sort of about the joyfulness of, of, um, you know, the first chapter is called epiphany. It was like the joyfulness of, 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 of exploring and, and discovering and, and um, and I wanted the book to have that energy. I, I kind of thought like any kind of dark energy. I didn't really feel like I needed to necessitate that being in the book. I wanted the book to be this totem that kind of was magical, where it was all about um, this kind of benign force, and to not and, and infuse it with with too much of um, of uh, bad vibes. And so writing about my father's death was I felt was necessary because. In some ways it was like, well, I didn't have any issues with my father. So there was no, there was nothing of conflict there. It was all about, you know, it was all about a a, a great love between a father and a son and his family. But it was also about a a year where it was a very radical uh, uh, transition in my life. So by him passing away and me going off to New York by You know, by the end of the year, at least going off to New York and and becoming witness to what would be a vocation for um, me—that was really important. I kind of wanted to. I kind—I needed to sort of write about how that that year was one of loss and one of like, you know, a, a period of defining my entire future. And so, how to tie that together was 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 just rather happenstance. I think if my father had lived, I, I have a feeling my trajectory into going to New York would have been somewhat similar, though predicated upon different realities. I don't think I would have you know, met the person in the New Haven, Connecticut record store who would have invited me by letter to come and rehearse in downtown New York with them. And then one thing led to the other. And the, the, the footpath the foot would be different. But I think he would have been okay ultimately with me leaving the university. I, and I I think there it, there could have been some headbutting going on there. I don't know, but I, I do think he understood that there was something of value and in, and in, in devoting yourself to music and art, certainly sure. And uh, so I'm not sure how it would have played out. I really don't.
0: Well, you, you you write a really fun passage about you and your childhood best friend, Harold Paris, going to New York as teenagers, driving into the city to sort of like seek out your punk rock heroes and to kind of make contact with the stuff that you had been reading about and listening to. And yeah. there is a great remembrance of this. What was it? Suicide and the cramps. Was that the concert I, yes. at Max's Kansas City? Where like yes. uh, I believe Alan Vega of Suicide is like throwing drinks in people's faces and shattering glasses and like cutting yeah. himself. Like sort of like the ultimate punk rock experience. And you yeah. guys are what, eighteen, nineteen years old and just mind blown. <laughs> right. Yeah. Totally. I mean that's uh that's great, but this is the time that you're in. You're in CBGB, Max's Kansas City, all of that stuff is happening at that time.
1: Yeah, I was already, you know, I was I was hyper aware of something going on in downtown New York that I was very interested in. I had already sort of been interested in music coming out of New York City, whether it was the New York Dolls or there was a band called the Dictators that were early on, you know, and so I was kind of. To me, you know, if it had anything to do with with urban music and the kind of chaos that it kind of implied, I was just like really, I just was interested in what was going on on the wild side of rock. You know, I mean, Iggy and, Iggy and the Stooges, Iggy Pop came out of Detroit, but you know, he made such a momentous, you know, uh, marks in New York City by playing at Max's Kansas City and jumping up and cracking his head open or hearing about these stories of him there. And, and then, you know, I sort of talk about how there was still this idea that, you know, contemporary music for like radical youth was happening like in Woodstock and around the the, escaping from the standards of, of uh, societal expectation and moving into the country and sort of, you know, uh, Smoking copious amounts of marijuana and just sort of getting lost to the country, and I wasn't really interested in that. In some ways, I kind of thought, like, well, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. I'll, be, I'll just be a hippie and I'll go off into, to the country and smoke copious amounts of marijuana <laughs> and st- play music. I don't know, I just kind of wanted to be where the action was. But upon seeing a, an image or picture of the New York Dolls in New York, and all of a sudden there was this kind of band that was hanging around on subway platforms, I was far more sort of. Uh, Intrigued by that. It seemed just more, it, I don't know, there's something that just seemed, more, um, it seemed more, more, it seemed more thrilling. And it also seemed like it had a lot to do with this embrace of the essence of what rock and roll was, you know, and it wasn't sort of discounting it as a, a music that was junior to, say, folk, folk influenced uh, rock music or. Progressive rock music had to, all to do with um, the ability of, of having a very learned and practiced high technique, you know, with your instrument, instruments. And that the, the fact that it was like, it seemed like the New York Dolls were a band that just sort of picked up guitars, of, you know, like last week and plugged them in and learned a few <laughs> bar chords. Right. But their, their ideas and their energy and everything else going on was just so great. Their presentation was just like to die for. And they were dressing up in women's clothes, but they were like these kind of wild hetero kind of maniacs. I was like, Gah. you know, I was like, what is this? And then Patty Smith, who was writing poetry and, and writing this really incredible kind of rock journalism, music journalism, and then she was, you know, uh, singing on stage with like another rock writer named Lenny Kay. And like, I you know, I talk about like, what does a rock writer sound like on record? You know, when she makes that first seven inch, I was like, I just wanted to hear what a writer (laughs) sounded like singing on a record. And you know, it it was, it was amazing. So there was something a little more, there's something about the fact that these, a lot of the music that I was hearing coming out of New York city, it just sort of seemed like it, it had a, it, it seemed intelligent, even though it was like kind of playing kind of like street tough at the same time, it was sort of, there was there was this collision between uh, you know being kind of uh, sort of being kind of organic to this to the street wildness and also being really sort of um, open to a lot of like, new ideas that were coming out of like new literature whether it be like William Burroughs or uh, Susan Sontag or something and that always impressed me because I mean I'd, when I first went to CBGBs on any given night it would be a band like the Talking Heads, who are sort of college graduate art students, you know, who started a band that was really sort of like, you know, very sort of angular and esoteric and, you know, very sort of knowing of what the, how they were employing these kind of motifs from rock music. And, you know, they're obviously very kind of like well-educated, like, you know, nerdy kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, kids out of university on the same bill as like somebody like johnny thunder's heartbreakers and johnny thunders was just like you know he was like a a a city kid who was just like lost into like you know uh bad attitude and heroin and just sort of and like living the glory of this and it was like sloppy and dirty fingernails on you know i used to sit so close sometimes because i like to study the bands i could see like the dirt under johnny thunder's fingernails i was just like and the fact that these people are on the same stage, that collusion between this really kind of raw rock and roll essence and then this kind of more sort of new and kind of like art school take, I think that's sort of what defined punk punk rock in a way. I mean, certainly Malcolm McLaren was was on board with that, with with the Sex Pistols. He's like, here's this guy who came out of like studying political science and like, you know, in, in one of the, f- the finest establishments in Paris coming back to London. It's just sort of like the kids who were stealing stuff out of his store that he and Vivian Westwood ran. He said like, I, he loved them. He was just like, you know, these little Dickensian characters is like, why don't you start a band? And you could sort of be like, are the, the band mascots, you know, you know, he, and so it was just like this kind of exploitation of these little street ragamuffins who turned out to be, extremely clever in their own way certainly john lyden was you know and you know it, 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 but that's that collusion always i thought was kind of the most one of the most defining aspects of punk rock and i like that i thought that was wonderful and i thought i was always interested in people playing playing it up i think patty played it up a bit you know and it, it was like when you look at inter, when you look at like poetry readings at st mark's poetry project in the early 70s a lot of the readers they have this kind of there's a sort of like street tough bravado they have in their voice, you know, that sort of tends to change. when the city changes, I think when it does become more muddy, there's this kind of new voice that kind of is purposefully more sophisticated, but that wasn't always the case. It's a whole other, this is a whole nother book I want to write about.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean like, but what you're speaking to is just how vibrant of a scene it was. And that's something that really comes through in your memoir is, there's a ton of talent in Lower Manhattan when you were there as a young man, and it's everybody from, you know, Sonic Youth, Madonna, uh, the Ramones, Talking Heads, Television, Blondie, yeah. hip
1: hop, Fat Five uh, Freddy, and yeah,
0: uh, yeah. Uh, Jean Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring. I mean, there were some real yeah. forces of nature in that place at that time. You have to feel a sense of. Like good fortune, just to have been near it and to be around all those people and that energy.
1: It was an explosive demographic. I mean, it, you know, at the time, I don't think anybody thought like we are of a certain generation that has sort of come into the same streets together to do whatever we're going to do. I mean, not everybody kind of, you know, is is making work of of too of too much notability. There's a lot of there's a lot of kind of um, sort of jive notes being being played (laughs) but you know but it was kind of curious in a way that um it was a generation i was born in 1958 so i think it was this generation from like early to mid 50s people born in like 53 52 53 on until like around that 10 year period of the people kind of born 63 and early 60s mid 60s just coming of age at that time in the late seventies, early eighties, and it's it's kind of a curious demographic because in some ways it was sort of the last vestiges of people coming of age where the discovery of 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 these of, of wanting to, to be in this vocation, have this, you know, and to sort of deal with this creative impulse, it all really changes pretty radically by the time we get into digital culture and this digital medium and tech culture, sure. you know, for, for better or worse. I mean, you know, and, uh, and so it's, it, it's, you it, know, it always seems like when I write, when I wrote this book, I did, I didn't want it to be like back in my day, Sonny, you know, we used to drive for three miles to find the class record. <laughs> I, I, didn't want, I didn't want, I didn't want it to be that way at all. I didn't want to, I didn't want to talk about, you know, it being a, a better time or a worse time? I just wanted to write about it being a time.
0: It seems you know? it seems awesome to me. I got to say, from the outside looking in, it seems it's really fun to read about, and it makes me. I've always kind of wanted to wish I could have experienced that time in New York. I don't think I'm alone.
1: Um, well, I really wanted to write about. I really wanted to be a love letter to that period of New York City, and you know, I used to have such a desire to go to run off to London because what I fantasized what was going on in London at that time was. It was a fantasy and I have no idea what would have happened if I did that or Berlin, you know, like what was going on in Berlin at that time before the wall came down or, or, or LA around the mask period when the germs and the weirdos and X and everybody were starting, I would have loved, loved to have been there. Or in San Francisco, like, you know, with the Avengers and the dead Kennedys and all this. And it's just like, I, you know, I just happened to be near New York city. So New York city became the place that I gravitated to. And, you know, in retrospect, it's like, it was, um, it was, yeah, it was insane. It was great. It was like, you know, New York City is New York City. You you just can't dispel like how significant that Berg is. So to write about that specific period from the prism of being like, you know, just some like, you know, 20 year old experimental, you know, noise rock musician. (laughs) I was like, you know, I do know that a lot of people Wanted to know the story, but I also knew that I think that there was be an appreciation to actually be as descriptive as possible about what what life was like day to day in that kind of world, and I could only give my personal recollection of it. There's not been certainly been other books by musicians writing about downtown New York. I mean, the uh, Harley Flanagan, who was like the teenage bass player in the Cro-Mags, like this kind of. Classic New York hardcore band. I mean, he wrote a book about living on the in the East Village that makes mine seem like you know uh, Mary Poppins. I mean, his is all. You know, his <laughs> right. is like his, It's like he's he's living in like the squalor of just like complete and utter, you know, uh, crazed lifestyle of, of 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 just like drugs and cohabitating with a bunch of rat- like lunatics and like these broken down tenement buildings on Avenue D and. You know, his book is about that. But so I didn't live that life. I kind of, kind of kept it somewhat, I, you know, I was somewhat of a, had a bit of a conservative lifestyle compared to that. Sure. You know? but. Um,
0: That's also why you, you've had a long career and have made a ton of music, I bet. I mean, it feels like a candle <laughs> that burns at both ends, right? If you're, if you're living that way.
1: Well, he survived, thankfully. He's, you know, he's a good person and I'm glad to see somebody like that can survive and write a book about it. But you know, his book was really sort of just like, man, you wouldn't believe it. And I was like, well, I would believe it. Tell me more. You know, I, was, I kind of wanted my memoir to not sh- get shy away from really getting descriptive, and that was kind of for me the enjoyment of writing because it was all about this. It was all about the joy of writing, and I kind of really wanted to be. I really wanted to, you know, get my feet wet as far as like being getting into the prose of writing about, about place, you know, about environment and the, and no matter what the experience is, you know?
0: Well, it definitely does that. And, uh, you know, I also want to talk with you about your early adventures into music. And in particular, I'm curious to ask you, or I'm curious to know about your thoughts on creative chemistry, because I, I've, hear about this and read about this a lot in the context of bands and music that there is a certain magic that happens when a band works and it has to do with the chemistry of the players in the band you started out in early bands like room tone and the coachman uh, and eventually you meet kim you meet other players in the band and you form sonic youth and things begin to take off it wasn't an overnight thing. You know, there are many years you guys learned how to play with one another and, you know, sort of built your chops. But there is something magical about the combination of musicians in that band. Would you agree? I mean, and, and can you talk a little bit about, like, just your thoughts on that, like how that works?
1: I, th- I think, in some ways, it's entirely providential. I, you know, when I, when, when Kim and I meet and I've I'm already sort of playing music with a, a couple of musicians uh, a young woman named Anne marinus a drummer named David key and it was sort of it's kind of an extension of of what I was doing with these earlier bands from the late 70s that nobody ever heard of the coachman room tone is a name that Becomes the coachman. The coachman is the band that actually sort of actually plays gigs, the few that we did play, and we did record a little bit. And that the recordings that we put out came out in the eighties on a on a, a label that the Minutemen ran at SST Records called New Alliance. I should reissue that record now that this book is out. Um, Jay Maskus of Dinosaur Jr. said it's the best record I ever made. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> I. Um, and he might be right. I mean, it's just like I think it's a really. I think the coachman made a really. We were really good. We were really cool, but no, we no, we got very little notice. Um, but anyway, I mean, when I started getting Sonic Youth together, I kind of the name Sonic Youth was always sort of like crawling around in my in the back of my head, and um, we would eventually sort of use that name when I kind of felt at, a, at sort of a desperate situation when both Ann and not so much Dave Key we had another drummer named Richard Edson after that and they both kind of were in and out and certainly Richard was and Anne kind of just decided to step out and it was just both Kim and I and Kim and I were living together and so we were we were going to do we were going to work together no matter what and um, we enjoyed working together obviously and we were playing music and from I kind of sort of at that point sort of just really kind of raised my voice a little more as like, okay, I'm just going to be the de facto leader here because I was kind of all about the democracy of the, of the unit. And it would certainly become more that as soon as Lee came in and certainly when Steve Shelley came in. But at first it was kind of, it was kind of me sort of kicking the door down a bit. And I didn't really have any other recourse as far as like what I was going to do with my life in any kind of professional way. Uh, Kim was already sort of working as a visual artist. I mean, she could have easily uh, followed her, her skills and her heart into the gallery world that a lot of her associates were involved with. And But for me, I was just like, no, I, I, I'm, um, I'm playing alternative tune guitar, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? She, and uh, that's all it, there, is there is to it. There's no plan. B. There was no plan. I don't, B. I don't really have much of a plan B. And, um, and I, you know, but, uh, again, you're so young, you're not really sort of, you're not intellectualizing or analyzing your life that much. You're just kind of going, you're just kind of, you know, you're getting through days without thinking about shelf life at all. I mean, you know, that comes, that does come later, as you obviously know.
0: Sure, but, yeah. That, that,
1: that, that you know, when you're in your early 20s, you don't think about that. You, it's, you, have, you feel you have a million years ahead of you. And... So you, it is a much more of a um, a day to day kind of existence in your thought processes. I I would say that I, I what I said at the top of all this that I, I think it's very providential. I mean, the fact that we aligned ourselves with Lee Ronaldo early on, it just sort of he was one of many kind of interesting creative people around that scene playing around with you know, the people that we felt, uh, you know, were doing kind of mutual kind of work such as Glenn Bronco or Reese Chatham or a lot of music around their world and coming out of the kitchen center of downtown. But, you know, it, it could have been anybody. And so the fact that it was Lee had a lot to do just sort of with our connection with him, with his personal, with the, his pers- I mean, his personality was something we liked. We liked what he was doing with, when he was playing with Glenn and seeing him do other kind of work together. I don't know. It just sort of happened. So I think back about it and it's like, what was it that brought the three of us together? And to the point where within a year's time, the three of us were working as a very sort of unified organism. And I noticed in most bands that doesn't exist. There's always, there's definitely it's definitely more thorny than that. There's always kind of one or two people who push one way and one or two people push the other way, or there's always this kind of, you know, there's no sense of a real flow between the consciousness of, of each person. And you recognize it certainly with, with, with bands that have this kind of magic. And so I talk about that. I talk about like, what is it? What is the, what is the Beatles? You know, what is this thing that happens, you know? Right. And, you know, the Beatles is a is there's a reason why the Beatles were so significant as a band all through the sixties was just because of that, that ineffable quality of just of of how they found each other locally and sort of came up together as, you know, four really kind of different people, but also very understanding of each other's like, um, connection to each other, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, no, it's but maybe I, the word, I, I, the word that comes to mind is magic. It's just like, you can't yeah. even really define it when it happens. I mean, the Beatles, just the simple way that their voices all fit together when they're harmonizing yeah. is incredible. Like it just seems so unlikely, especially, you know, to be living that close to one another and to find one another and to have that thing. You can't manufacture it. It either sort of happens or it doesn't. Right.
1: Very true. Very true. I think with early on, the three of us lee kim and myself we kind of i think there was this realization that it was it it had a it had a magical unity and so we just like entrusted that regardless of what acceptance or non acceptance we had at that point and you know it when we and, and bob Burt, the first drummer for a few years you know, he was definitely a part of that. But Bob eventually would leave because, again, I mean, I think he felt slightly at odds with what that nucleus of us three in the front were. And when Steve Shelley came in, I think it it took a couple of years for him to actually sort of get into that flow as a fourth member, you know, uh, in that unity. But he did. And... You know, and it's something that will never go away. I think the the four of us will always sort of have that unified. Well, we certainly have the history, you know, and so I mean, it, it begs the question: like, will you guys ever get together again? It's like, well, we never really, we never, we never really, we never really, like, quote unquote, officially broke up. We just stopped playing together because Kim and I separated, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, right. And it's like, so there's a problem there, but it's like, you know, but at the, it's like, in in a way that 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 unification will always remain.
0: You know? Sure. I mean it's a, Yeah, that's an unbreakable bond. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the creative process of Sonic Youth. And I'll begin by reading a quote from your book. This is you, I think, assessing the kind of player that you are on the guitar. You say, quote, I never really learned to play the classics. I had basically gone straight from picking up a guitar to making my own brand of noise. Uh, that's interesting because, you know, I, I think I just saw a quote. I was like fl- flicking through Instagram, and there was Kurt Cobain talking about how unschooled he was as a guitar player, like, you know, not reading music or distinguishing between sharps and flats. Like, this was a very intuitive, naturally yeah. gifted player. And yet, you'll also have really great players who do have a more like scholarly approach to an instrument or a more formal training. It can come in all shapes and sizes. And I'd love to hear you talk about that, your approach to the guitar, and then also about how Sonic Youth, in a general sense, made a song. You guys rehearsed a lot. Uh, You know, Bands have different approaches. Sometimes somebody will come up with some lyrics, other times you're just sort of in the rehearsal studio making music together and then you land on something. But you just talk about the actual labor of making music.
1: Right. I think, I think the most, for me, the most successful Sonic Youth music was the music that came out of a group improvisation when we'd get together and there was no, there was no, there was no uh, prepared chord structures or or song ideas. And we would just come in and we would just start playing, you know, it's like we would show up and we'd finish our coffees and, smokes or whatever we were doing, and then we would just start plugging in and sort of start up. And that, to me, was always the most rewarding because it kind of kind of came out of this group interplay that, again, was very magical. And when we got to the point where we could actually afford equipment that could record the rehearsals, that was really important because then we could sort of zero in on certain things that happened 30 minutes ago. Like, remember what you were playing? It's like, was it this? No, it wasn't that. It was, but then you could actually rewind the tape and there it was and you could sort of study it. And that's, it to me was like, I found the most rewarding, but at the same time, I liked constructing song ideas at home, you know, and then kind of realizing fairly quickly that, what I would bring in would completely become modified by how, uh, how Kim would relate to it or how Lee would relate to it or how Steve would relate to it. And I could never really dictate what anybody should play, nor nor did I kind of want to so much. And so I would sort of just begin playing this idea I would have for a song and um, each of the other musicians in the band would sort of come up with different ideas. And if I kind of, if one of the ideas that they were playing, I found too jarring with like my, what I thought maybe the song should sound like, I would say something, but it, it rarely came to that. And so that's two ways of how we would write songs. Usually when the instrumental versions of these pieces would come together and we'd And we really got into like the editing and the truncating of like, okay, this is, this is a good four minute song, five minute song. It's a good eight minute song for God's sakes. And we were kind of known for like, you know, having longer songs because you know, why not? And we found that it was like, you know, the, the, they were, you know, they had, they had worth, you know, being that long and it's like, And in some ways that was part of being an experimental band is just like to that, that idea of like uh, how long a typical uh, song should be. Um, There's something he said about the economy of a two, three minute song. And there was something he said about like uh, the, the vista of a very, of a 12 minute song. How about if we just like, you know, do a 30 second song and how about we do a 30 hour song? You know, right. like, you know, you know it's being really kind of audacious in that way. We enjoyed being audacious, but it was usually after the, the, The instrumental uh, aspect would would be complete is when we would uh, begin to think about singing or uh, the actuality of writing lyrics. And a lot of that had to do, a lot of it came to a place where you wouldn't actually even uh, uh, tackle that until you got into the recording studio. And it's like, well, who's going to sing this one? Or who's going to sing this one? I kind of want to sing that one. I want to sing that one. And and you would choose and you would kind of barter a little bit sometimes. And then you would create your own singing, which was like a whole other kind of line of tonality and, you know, uh, melody, if if indeed you were actually going to employ melody. And I mean, both Kim and I were pretty challenged vocalists. I mean, Lee actually had a very sort of trained uh, singing voice. But, you know, the whole whole thing of technique is sort of, uh, you know, Lee sort of had a very sort of uh, trained guitar technique that he had come up with since he was a child. I had sort of a, a, I had a slight technique of sorts that I gleaned how to play, uh, you know, fairly proper chordings and and notation. But, and I knew something about, I had some inclination of music theory just from taking piano lessons as a child. And. Having a father in the household who was playing piano all the time, I, I, I Kim just learned completely visually. It was all about the the patterns on the on the on the bass neck and the guitar neck that she would ap- apply her memory er, to, and um, and she kind of figured it out thus. So, it was completely self taught in that respect. And but at the same time, it was sort of like the same thing with we were talking about earlier with like. You know, somebody of the nature of Johnny Thunders being on the same stage as somebody of the nature of David Byrne coming from two completely different places, but sort of meeting at a place where they kind of served each other in the dynamic that was going on in the scene. And in some ways, that was sort of the that was kind of the calling card of anybody in a band that was coming out of punk rock. It was just like there was no judgment of technique at all. You know, so, you know. It's certainly not in Sonic Youth. So knowing that Lee sort of had this higher, uh, uh, had more of an ability to play a higher technique of guitar, at least in a traditional sense, um, there was never any sense of like, well, um, I'm, I'm quote unquote better than you are. There was, nobody was better than anybody. And that was sort of like, as soon as you understood that or um, allowed that to be the the uh, the idea in the band that nobody in your band is better than the other in any musical terms that was you were truly a band you know <laughs> and that right. was like dig- that was giving dignity and respect to each other as a as a group dynamic and so that was super important and we never talked about that that was never something we we came to terms with i remember reading an interview with Tina Weymouth of Talking Heads early on and she said and she was answering a question that was that was n- not too unlike this one. And I remember her saying something is like, well, you know, there's one word we never use in our rehearsals. And that's the word boring. We never like, you know, if somebody's coming up with something, we would never use the word that's boring. Or, you know, it's like and I thought like, well, yeah, that is kind of a main thing to say to anybody. It's sure. kind of like you're working with. Right. But it was interesting in a way. It was just like that's not something we would ever, we would ever say to e- each other, you know. And um, I, I, you know, what I think there probably are a lot of bands where like the guitar player takes his guitar off and throws it down and points at the bass player goes like, dude, it's boring, man. Can't come with you? Right. And the fist fight will pursue, or they, you know, they they come, or they. You know. A lot of bands are, you know, they break up because they just do not see eye to eye, and they, you know, it, uh, and it can, sometimes it becomes, ter- it becomes. Territorial. it just sort it becomes, you know, it, there's this is politics of positioning that happens in bands with hierarchies of like who's doing what at any given time or who's employing what in the band. And I've seen this happen, and it's the downfall. It's the downfall of the sure. band. As soon as, yeah. as soon as that happens, it's it's done. You have to grow up. If you don't grow up, you're just going to be a you're going to be in arrested development forever, and um as most musicians are anyway. But it's a. You kind of <laughs> You kind of do. You kind of do want to sort of realize that it's kind of a it, It's it's okay to act your age, right? In, in rock and roll, yeah, There's
0: a certain <laughs> dignity, right, in just accepting your station in life.
1: Yeah.
0: And you know, another another notable and well documented aspect of Sonic Youth is the fact that there was a marriage in the band. Yeah. And you were in a long term romantic partnership with Kim, and then that ended and your book sort of is pretty studious in avoiding a real deep dive into the weeds on that. But something that I want to ask you about is being in a public couple in a creative enterprise and having your fans mythologize you because, you know, and I think, you've done this with bands, maybe when you were younger, you know, coming up. It's, it's a really natural thing, I think, for fans of bands to do mm-hmm. is to kind of project stuff onto people in the band to sort of get into the weeds, wanting to learn about them and wanting to know what they're into and where they're from. And, you know, you start talking about them almost with your friends, like they're your friends, you know, <laughs> like, and, yeah. and they're not, you don't know them. But I think that this dynamic had to have been particularly acute when you're married to someone in the band and you have people sort of holding you up as this creative couple ideal. Can mm. you just talk a little bit about the challenges of that and then also the challenges of deciding how to write about that relationship?
1: Yeah. Well, I totally understand it. As you said, I, I, uh, I invested a lot of... Um, kind of emotional mythologizing into like John and Yoko or something, you know? Yeah. And I've, and I've worked a lot with Yoko Ono and I've talked to her about it,
0: you know? I I do the same thing by the way. Like I, they are to me like some sort of ideal, like that seventies John and Yoko thing is very much like a fairy tale in my head.
1: Well, I mean, that said, I, you know, and I actually, you know, I, I confided in Yoko that as far as the Beatles are concerned, I thought, she made them that much more interesting, you know? And, uh but that said, she did suffer a lot of abuse and continues to from people who see her as, as somebody who destroyed the world's greatest band. And that's really, that's something that she will always have in her life. And so I, you know, I kind of relate to that, but I, you know, for me, it's a sort of, I, I knew all through our the band's uh, existence that there was always this, um, you know, this notion of, of of the of the strength that uh, Sonic Youth exuded through the, uh, the the relationship between Kim and I, and I thought it was really sweet. And we never really were um, having. Uh, we were never very uh, demonstrative in our, in our, um, you know, in our marriage in any which way. So um, you never really sort of heard reports of us having any kind of like marital Mm -hmm. spats, uh, you know, in the press, but it didn't really matter. Uh, I think people just sort of took a lot of, um, had a lot of faith in in that. So I think when we, broke up due to me falling in love with somebody else, it was really hurtful for a lot of people. It was really hurtful for everybody in our family and for um, my family, and, uh, my my wife Ava's family and Kim's family. And and so for me, it was just sort of like, at this point, I didn't really want to sort of have to sort of explain that so much in my writing. I think it would have been in the context of a book like this, where there's so much information in the book about so many different things to sort of, to sort of squeeze that in there. I don't think it'd need, I think it would be undignified to act to quote unquote, squeeze it in there. I think it, it would have to be something that would have to stand alone and, and not be, um, you know, uh, trying to make room in a, in a book that was, contracted for 300 pages is now 500 pages and was, you know, but even when I had an 800 page, uh, manuscript, it didn't really, it wasn't really something I wanted to sort of extol on only because I knew that my decision was that I found it would be, it's, 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 it's something that I only feel, I feel so private about and that I share with my family and my daughter and, And I don't really feel like I necessitates me sharing it publicly, even though we were public figures, only because I think it would just sort of it would definitely create more hurt if I sort of did go out and sort of explain what was going on with like my decision uh, for um, for ending our marriage. And it's, it's not so that's not something. That I think I would want anybody in my family, particularly my daughter, and, and to some degree, uh, Kim, to uh, hear me uh, voicing publicly. That so makes it's just going to happen. That makes and, human and, sense. And, and, and at the same time, I felt like there's something about there's something about it becoming public that, uh, that it, it automatically, it, you're automatically, I mean, I'm selling a book, for God's sake. So you're sort of capitalizing on something like that. I don't feel comfortable with. I mean, to monetize my, you know, my um, my private life is not something I wanted to do at all in the book. But that said, you know, I write about the death of my father. And I was like, you're sort of capitalizing on that. I was like, well, that's not the same. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's a different, that's a different e- e- emotional reality than the, um, than say, uh and say heartbreak you know
0: sure and and a more is immediate in fa- a more immediate family heartbreak like you mentioned your yeah. daughter and stuff like i you know i have kids i can relate to i don't she wanting big, to protect your children and stuff i like know that.
1: she does. well i know my daughter doesn't want that to to be something that is going on in in the writing of of my book and i told her that early on i said i'm not writing about that stuff and she's like thank you right
0: and so <laughs> yeah
1: but you know at the same time i you know i had a uh there, there was a, a young woman in the late seventies that I had a relationship with who, uh, who was raped. And I kind of read uh, a bit about that in the book as well is like, you know, and how I had to contend with that reality of, of this woman I was very close to experiencing rape. And I didn't, I felt like I didn't want to write about that because, um, it's really nobody's business, but it, it, it was something that I thought it was such a growing experience for me at the time. And I wrote to her, I still keep in touch with her and I wrote to her and I said, would you mind, are you okay with me writing about this? I I certainly will not if you, if you wish I didn't. And I, and I would like you to read it, you know, before publication. And, and she was very, you know, we're, 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 we're good friends. So, she was she was okay with it, you know. But i i i uh I got permission, thus, so I, you know, I would never. I I felt a, a little at odds with that, but I, I do. It was something I felt was important to write about because I don't really see too much writing about the that that kind of violation of abuse of uh, and and rape by men you know, writing about, you know. The
0: impact how, that it had on you. I mean. Not- that,
1: well, yeah, the impact that it had on me, but also just like, just sort of, yeah, the impact that it had on me and how it kind of, for me, it, it, it just, it just made me so, um, uh. it just made me so detest such violence towards women that, that, that exists in this world. And to really sort of, you know, have to sort of, learn about that through uh, a situation like, uh, you know, somebody so close to you um, having rape exist in their lives. but I just feel like I didn't, I never really read, read about men talking about it, you know, um, in any which way. So that was, that, I thought that was a bit of a slippery slope for me, you know, and, and I think if there's anything more uh, difficult to write about in the book, even more so than my father's death, And, or even the the contemplation of sort of writing about like, you know, your, your heart going elsewhere and divorcing, uh, was writing about, you know, um, dealing with somebody that you loved who was being, who was raped at 19, 20 years old.
0: Yeah. Well, these are, I mean, these are difficult creative choices and you write autobiographically and you have to make them right. (laughs) Like there's inevitably going to be stuff in there that's personal, but you don't have to tell everything. You can't tell everything. So you have to decide and that's the, that's the process. Well, and that's the editorial process.
1: Learning about, learning about feminism is like really essential for me all through the book as well. So I I try to sort of have that exist without kind of like, um, shining in my badge. like, Oh, aren't I a good feminist or something? I just like, I kind of just, I kind of want to be very careful about that because it's like, my God, I mean, but it's like, for me, it's like, it's, it's, in some ways, it's so it's so essential to the nature of punk rock as a as a forum. Because if anything, it's a forum for a lot of just liberal ideology, and I think it's an incredible forum for for feminist activism. And so, I've I've always been sort of through punk rock. I was, I I found that to be informed by feminism th- uh, th- through that was really fortuitous for me because I don't think it would have come, th- I don't know where that would have come from.
0: Well, and know? I think being in a band with a woman, which is not the m- most usual set of circumstances for young guys in their twenties or whatever. A lot of times it's a bunch of guys, but having some feminine yeah. energy in sonic youth, yeah, I think it's part of the band's a- appeal and the reason why it works so well. Right. Oh, very much so.
1: Oh, very much so. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be sonic youth without that at all.
0: Well, before I let you go, I want to ask you about a little bit about legacy because Sonic Youth is, it never hit the heights of say Nirvana in terms of like the popular culture you write about that, but it's an incredibly influential band and it's a band that fed bands like Nirvana and Pavement and, uh, There's, I mean, there's a litany of, of indie rock bands and alternative bands that would point to you and Sonic Youth as being big influences. And something that you write about, and it has to do with the 1992 tour that you did in Europe with, what was it, Huggy Bear Pavement and Sebadoa. You say, playing with those guys, I could see how the model of independence, self governance, and defiance of mainstream standards of success that had defined us since 1981 had become commonplace. And That's as good of a line as any that I can point to in terms of trying to articulate what it is about Sonic Youth and your music and your approach to music that became such a touchstone for so many young people starting bands and continues to. Like, Do you have anything to add to that? Do you have a sense of why your band has been kind of used as a model?
1: I think there's a certain... um romance to um inaccessibility
0: in <laughs> right yeah i, I get mean that. you know
1: i mean it's just sort of like it's like it's you know when d boone from the minutemen uh said punk is whatever we wanted it to be you know which is like kind of a you know there's such a it's almost like a a, a buddhist statement in a way you know and in some ways i always felt like um i sort of entrusted our quote unquote legacy to being the fact that we we kind of had a bit of a we had a, a bit of a zen consciousness to the band in a way and i think that kind of appealed to a lot of younger bands coming up seeing that they would never really have to necessitate you know having to sort of appeal to the expectations of the mainstream um, in order to you know have like any level of regard you know if self regard or sort of the the regard from their peers that it was the, to uh, to continue to be challenging and what you do is is much cooler than trying to uh, to appeal to any Status in the mainstream. I mean, Nirvana certainly. You know, they. It, it's such a weird. It became such a kind of distorted template for so much of what happened, and I think Nirvana knew that, and I think that sort of created a lot of conflict for Kurt. I mean, Kurt had other issues going on, but I think there was that ultimately was happening for him, and and kind of, it's, it kind of became manifest for him in his own life where. All of a sudden, you know, he became the most popular boy in school, you know, and it it was like, it was, it was at such odds with him being not that ever.
0: Right. Right.
1: And so, I mean, and so I think there's something about this idea of just like, this kind of idea of finding beauty and deformity maybe i don't know the scar lover kind of thing all i know is that i'm always to me it was like always about the it was always about the attraction to otherness you know and i think that was sort of what if we have any i think we kind of are the poster children for otherness
0: <laughs> but that's a good you know? thing to be i think that's a good thing to be and i feel like you know i've been listening to a lot of sonic youth over the past few days like getting ready for this interview and the music holds up and there's something about the just the sound it just sounds cool and i think that has to do with what a deep listener of music you and the, your bandmates are and were and just some sort of innate talent it's you know there's ultimately there's something kind of ineffable and magical about it but i think that well we made a
1: lot of we made a lot of records and we were around for a, a, and it much longer time than most bands and you know, and we all continue to do, to do stuff out there in the, in the sound world. I'm going to go see Steve Shelley play this Friday. He's drumming with the Bush Tetras who were like a heroic band for me, like in the late seventies who are back together and they're touring with Steve Shelley. So my God, that's wonderful. And so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go say hi to them Friday. Doctor's orders willing. And then, uh, yeah, you know, so, I um, In some ways, I always say like Sonic Youth was an apprenticeship to our later lives. So I I, I like to think about it as, a, as, as something that kind of we did in our youth that sort of defined our whatever sensitivity we have in our later years. So, yeah, I'm just going to continue making records. I think for I, I don't know if I'm going to tour so much anymore, but I am going to write more books.
0: Oh, you are. OK, I was going to ask you
1: yeah I want to write fiction. I'm working on a ghost story that takes place in like it's like a no wave ghost story It takes place in the Lower East Side, early 90s. <laughs> oh,
0: cool Well and you mentioned doctor's orders. Uh, I know that you you had to cancel a book tour because of a, a health issue. you feeling okay?
1: Yeah I have a bit of a heart issue. I have, I have like atrial fibrillation and I'm on meds like blood thinning meds so sure. I can't really I can't go to the airport I'm not allowed to fly. I'm supposed to be on a book tour right now.
0: I know, and, uh, I know.
1: Yeah. So, but I, um, yeah, it just happened. It just happened at that at the worst time, you know, like right before I was ready to jet off. I went to see a, a a cardiologist, and they took the test. And I've been having this issue off and on for years, but this year I felt it was more profound. Like there was times I could hardly walk. So my wife Eva took me to the, to my cardiologist, and they said, "Yeah, you need to have." Um, uh, there's a procedure that's h- highly successful it's like very it's like 99.9 percent which I will have in a couple of weeks and we'll see you know most people say like the next morning you're playing handball so we'll see
0: all right well I wish you well and I am grateful to you for taking the time to talk with me congratulations on Sonic Life your new memoir thanks Brad. and uh, I wish you well
1: it's great to talk to you I appreciate it
0: Okay, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Thurston Moore, founder of Sonic Youth and author of the new memoir entitled Sonic Life. It is available now from Doubleday. You can find Thurston on the internet at thurstonmoore.com. Follow him on social media, on Instagram, and on Twitter. One more time, the book is called Sonic Life. Go get your copy right away. Don't forget to subscribe to this program wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow The Other People Show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Subscribe to my weekly uh, email newsletter. It's free. Do that over at Substack and join The Other People Patreon community. Help keep this show going into the future over at patreon.com slash pod. If you have a minute and you want to do me a favor, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. If you can write a little review, if that's an option, that helps. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get another people t shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's available now in trade paperback ebook and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if that sounds good, go get my novel and read it. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Friday, there will be another flashback episode. I will dig into the Other People archives and share an outtake from a golden oldie. And then on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Jamie Nakamura Lynn, author of the memoir The Night Parade, available for Mariner Books. It is the official book club pick for November. If you want to join the other people book club, you can do that at otherppl.com. All right. Jamie Nakamura Lynn coming up on Sunday. Stay tuned.